Amen. Our sermon text today is from 1 Corinthians. I'm continuing in the series that Pastor Todd has been laying out through the book of Corinthians. And when he asked me to preach, I said, do you want me to continue in this pattern? And and you want me to fill in for one of those days? And he said, sure, it'd be great. And I looked at the text and I thought, oh boy. So here we are today. I, the, being the text is 21 verses long, I, I do have three points today, and they each take a section of that. So I will be reading the text out loud, but it will be before each of those points. So just so you're aware, I will uh, be reading from the text. I will get there if anybody's concerned. And my first point, I think, will, will help you understand that that is my heart as well. Casey Stengel, I don't know if any of you know that name, uh, New York Yankees manager back in the 1950s and 60s. I think he was with the Mets as well. He said this, the key to being a good manager is figuring out who hates you and keeping them away from those who are undecided. Now, I think he was kidding, but one could make a strong case that this wouldn't have been a terrible idea for the Apostle Paul in his ministry to the Corinthians especially, who were uh, becoming very factious. They they were breaking into groups and and deciding, I like Paul, I like Apollos. There was a lot of division. Pastors talked about that. He had accumulated for himself a number of enemies as a result of this, and and there were many who were proselytizing the anti-Paul bandwagon. The Corinthian church was this uh, very interesting church. They needed leadership. They were kind of a, a bingo card of church dysfunction. It would have been easy for Paul to side with, with one side of, uh, of the, the factions to leverage his leadership in the congregation, but he doesn't. Instead, in this chapter, Paul demonstrates his own true servant leadership within the church at Corinth. There are three marks in this text of a good servant leader. And though we're, we're not apostles like Paul was, most of you aren't pastors, These marks are still important for us to study and know as members of the Christian church. It's critical for us as Christians to recognize, to appreciate, and to emulate good biblical leadership. And we would do well to note and to know and to grow in these marks of a servant leader. So the first point point of servant leadership we see in this text, the first mark, I should say, is the servant leader stewards the word of God. Let me read the first seven verses for you from 1 Corinthians 4. Paul writes, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? What is a steward? 
It's really the question. Paul calls himself a steward here of the mysteries of God. A steward is one designated by a master to oversee a family or a household or state matters. They were caretakers of the wealth or the property or the ministry or the mission of the one who had appointed them. In Paul's case, he was given a very specific role as an apostle. He was given a very specific stewardship. God had entrusted Paul with his word. As as an apostle or as a sent one, Paul had a mission not to go to proclaim himself as important, not to gain a following, right? That wasn't his goal. If that was his goal, he should have campaigned a little harder in the popularity contest because Apollos seemed to be more attractive to the congregation. He knew that he was small, and he didn't concern himself with the fact that the Corinthians were unimpressed by his charisma. His goal, instead, was to give the congregation what they needed, not necessarily what they wanted. He was to make God big, and he was faithful in that calling. And there's a critical point for us to notice here. We need to be wise in how we judge good leadership in the congregation. Like the Corinthians, we can get caught up in man-made criteria for judging good leaders. We can gravitate to those with good skills or influence or charisma. I I, I think of this all the time. People flock to me telling me what a good communicator I am. They tell me all the time by saying, you have a face for radio. And I take that as a good communicator. I take that as they're they're looking up to me. I said, no, 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 no. No, but seriously, this is Pastor Appreciation Month. Right? And we've said goodbye to a faithful pastor who had been here for 22. We've welcomed a new pastor here this year. And one of the things is this. For all the gifts that both of these men, Pastor Franz and Pastor Todd, have had and brought to our congregation, the primary reason that we should appreciate them is that both men have been faithful in, in proclaiming and applying God's word of law and gospel to corporately uh, us as a congregation and then us as individuals as well. That's where true appreciation should come from. This was the content. This word was the content of Paul's stewardship. The mysteries of God, he says. He, he was entrusted by God himself with the precious gospel message. He was to deliver that, that uh, gospel message to the congregations to which he had been sent by God. And there was a sense then in which Paul was what we call sometimes a one-trick pony. He wasn't to drum up new content. He, that wasn't his role. He wasn't to magnify himself. This wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to proclaim the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus. He was to, was to apply law and gospel to the lives of those in the congregation to whom he was sent. He was to stick with the book. And that's what it means when Paul says to not go, that they were commanded to not go beyond what was written. When in seminary, uh, and as I took the call to be the dean of the college, one of our professors at the seminary gave me this advice. I asked him, um, what, what would you tell a, a young pastor going out into the congregation? And this is what he told me. He said, don't teach about the word. Teach the word. Let's say that again. Don't teach about the word. Teach the word. 
The reason that God is emphatic with Paul here to not go beyond what's written is that the word itself is the power of God for salvation, right? For all who believe, Romans 1.16. It's profitable, as, Tim, as Paul tells Timothy, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is, the, that is, the scriptures are the thing that does the working. That's why in my exegetical classes, like Romans, for instance, it's my goal to avoid overviews too much or, or summaries or trendy presentations of the text and rather to focus in on looking, what that, looking at what that word says. We live in a, a spiritual culture that sometimes uh, likes the package more than they like the content of the present. They like the package more than the present. We prefer cultural relevance or, or topical trendiness to the text of Scripture, which is God's method of bringing conviction and forgiveness of sins and life in the name of Christ. Being faithful to his word is the only way that Paul can effectively say this, as he does in the text, I'm judged by God alone. Only God can judge me. You have to be careful with that phrase. I believe it was the rapper Tupac Shakur who said that, and, and many cult leaders have said that as well, right? That, that only God can judge me. And, and oftentimes this is used as a way to either control or to manipulate or to justify our sin. But Paul's not doing that here. Paul's point here is that when he says only God can judge me, he doesn't care what the Corinthians say about him. He doesn't even put his stock in his own confidence and his conscience, right? His own innocence. He knows that he will be judged by God, on whether or not he was a good steward of what God had entrusted to him. God was the boss, and he got to choose if Paul was faithful or not. That's the point of stewardship. They were not commissioning him, the Corinthians. God was. And if God was doing the entrusting and the commissioning, he gets to determine whether or not the steward handled it well. And I want to say that this is a very freeing thing. When we are called to leadership in various ways, and I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't preach. Well, you have families, right? You have siblings, you have friends. You have some sphere of influence. Each of us do, really, regardless of how big or how small. But it's freeing when we know that our call in Christ is to proclaim his word and to look to this word. When the evaluation of our self-worth isn't dependent on the praise of people, it actually frees us to faithfully execute the, the ministries, the leadership we're called to. We're not chained to the yoke of people-pleasing. It simplifies our mission. It focuses our duties. It helps us to focus on the audience of one, as it's sometimes called, who has called each of us to steward the gifts that he's entrusted to us. First Peter 4.10 says that he has done exactly that, that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. When looking for a good spiritual leader, it should always be our intent to look past personality into that leader's faithfulness to the word of God. And if the content of Paul's leadership is stewarding God's word, then the mode of which it is carried, in which it is carried out is sacrifice. And that's our second mark today. The servant leader sacrifices for his people. I'm going to read again from uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 13. I invite you to follow along with your Bibles if you have them. Already, Paul says, you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without you, without us, excuse me, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that I, we might share with the rule, or the rule with you. 
For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. In this section, Paul speaks my language. And that language is sarcasm. Right? And it's hard to pick up a little bit. We, we can if you, if you do this. It's not because the English translation is poor. It's because we don't tend to think of Paul being sarcastic. But there's a place for good sarcasm. <laughs> and this is that place. This, this place Paul uses, he, he says, uh, in, in this particular case, I think sarcasm is okay. Because it draws attention to the contrast and the irony that needed to be recognized in the ministry of Paul and the life of the Corinthians. Paul needed to do this. The Corinthians, as, as you remember, they lived, in, and I think Pastor Todd shared this when he began this series, the Corinthian uh, church was in a very wealthy city. They were known for their culture, for their wisdom. They were accustomed to success, noted for their wisdom, philosophy, and wealth. And, and, and when we say that, we think not terribly unlike our own culture. There's really nothing inherently wrong with this, but the problem was that the Corinthian congregation had looked to the cues from their culture to determine what their Christian walk was to look like. Thus, Paul's ministry, which looked nothing like prosperity, was a subject to these Corinthian believers of ridicule. Paul is essentially saying here, go ahead and be the kings you think you are. Enjoy your wisdom, your strength, your honor. I'm going to stick with suffering, Paul says. That's the way that Jesus led. So, so yes, I'm hungry. Yes, I'm homeless and reviled and persecuted and slandered. Not least of which, by, by the way, by you guys. And yes, I am considered the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. Paul understood something here. The way of servant leadership is the way of sacrifice. It's the way of a cross. It's established by the call of Jesus when Jesus said, if anybody wants to take after me, to come and follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Mark 8, 34. The leadership, I, I think, and, and we can see this today, within some Christian circles, have failed miserably at grasping this point. They've used their pulpits to promote ideas that Paul absolutely obliterates in this text. A $65 million jet, for example, looks nothing like a cross. But yet, that's what one preacher thought was important to promote. And thousands of Christians flock to this teacher because we, in our culture, like the Corinthians, have plenty of money and plenty of examples around us to confuse prosperity with the will of God. An opposite example of servant leadership that, that I just shared with the $65 million jet is the character, the literary character. It's my favorite literary character, Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. In, in one scene of the book, and, and even a more poignant scene, I think, in the 2012 movie adaptation of this book, 
Jean Valjean rescues this young man he wasn't terribly fond of and who had gotten knocked unconscious by getting caught up in a revolution that he probably should not have been involved in. And Jean Valjean knew this, and he went behind enemy lines, and he took this unconscious young man, and he carried him through the sewers. And if you watch the 2012 version, it's extremely poignant. Which of these examples, the preacher with the $65 million jet, or Jean Valjean, best reflects Jesus? I think we understand the point, don't we? Paul knew his suffering was the path that he was called to walk. And he did so with confidence, knowing that Christ called him to this, both in command and in example. This call through command and example is seen in our third and final mark of servant leadership in this text today, and that's from verses 14 to 21. The shepherd, or the servant leader, excuse me, shepherds the flock. Let me read those verses for you, verses 14 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will, find out not the, uh, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now, when I had set up this um, outline uh, this week as I gave it to Mary Jo for a thing, I, I thought I wanted to be, you know, alliterative. I wanted to use S words for everything. But as I'm reading this text, as I was, as I was preparing the text, Shepherd is not really the best illustration here. I'm going beyond the text. What does the text call Paul here? It calls him a father. But since fathers and shepherds are closely related in Scripture, I want to use that illustration. I'm going to take father instead. Good fathers discipline, don't they? Good fathers discipline. They don't demean. Paul is doing something that, the, uh, that fathers have to do sometimes. He's doing something that spiritual leaders have to do sometimes. He's addressing error in the congregation. He's correcting their course. They were looking for eloquence and human wisdom. They were talkers with very little true spiritual power. What they needed was the word. They were looking for a theology of glory. They, wanted to, they, they needed to understand the way uh, that Christ was and that he suffered they needed to understand his cross but what paul didn't do he didn't do this to own them as we sometimes say in our culture right our vernacular his point wasn't to shame them or to make them ashamed he says he didn't want to win an argument for the sake of winning an argument to increase his popularity among his doubters like a parent wants what is best for their child's adjustment to their own independence his goal was to help them There are countless examples in the church today, in our churches today, of a failure to discipline. The word discipline, by the way, means teaching or to teach. One who is disciplined is one who learns. Okay. We see leaders all the time who want to be liked 
rather than to call sin, sin. We see leaders who are afraid to correct course because they're afraid of offending or hurting someone. God commands servant leaders, not just pastors, by the way, but also other congregational leaders, to exercise what we call church discipline. It's deeply unpopular for obvious reasons, some just mentioned, yet it's actually the design of God. As we're going to see in the the next chapter, as as Pastor Todd comes back and we look at chapter 5, Paul's call for church discipline is to better the individual that is being disciplined and not to harm them. Just like parenting, the goal is not for the child to experience shame, but to be taught, that is disciplined, right, to live in a way that is best for them and the church around them. Leaders who lead well do so knowing that they may have to say unpopular things. But those unpopular things are often the seeds from which the best fruit is grown. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 21, Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love of spirit and of gentleness? It's the leader's prerogative to assess the situation and know what is needed, correction or comfort, law or gospel. A good father is one who disciplines, but a good father also demonstrates. He doesn't just dictate. A good father demonstrates. He doesn't just dictate. Uh, parenting, right, is, is an interesting endeavor in life. Those of you who are parents know that. Children, as we teach our children, one of the ways in which they begin to learn is they mimic us, especially in language. I read a quote recently that said, children rarely misquote you. In fact, they usually repeat word for word what you should not have said, right? I think all of us who are parents know all too well that that's probably true and painfully accurate at times, right? Yet, in a very real sense, God has designed us to learn from imitating the examples of others, most notably our parents. It's notable here, then, that Paul says he isn't asking the Corinthians to believe or to do anything that he himself hasn't practiced. He's not asking them to live in a way that, doesn't, uh, that, that excuse me, hasn't been modeled by him. His goal is to remind them of his personal example. He wasn't there to wow. He was there to preach the word. He wasn't there to demonstrate a Christianity that pads one's pockets or extends one's influence. He was there to demonstrate the sacrifice of Christ. As you see in each of these points, a servant leader really, at the end of the day, is pointing people to the true servant leader. And Andrew Hansen, as he was leading worship today, mentioned that. Jesus came to be the living word, a good steward of the will of his father. He came to demonstrate the way of the cross, very literally, not a way of glory. He came to lead by example as he called out sin and comforted the broken. But Jesus, this is where we have to be so careful, okay? When we see this and we see, okay, this is what Jesus wants us to do. So I can tell you, go out and be a good steward. Go out and sacrifice. Go out and shepherd or or parent well, right? Go out and be a good leader. Jesus was more than just a good example. He was our substitute. He is the good shepherd who leads us to the living water of his word. Word of correction, word of comfort. He sacrificed himself in our place so that our sin, our failures of leadership, were dealt with in full. He's provided us with the means to enjoy these gifts. So as a congregation, in our families, our relationships, 
our places of work. We serve and lead. We do so thankful for Christ, the one true and perfect leader. And we do so in the strength that only he can provide. Amen. Father in heaven, I do thank you for for this, your word of promise, that we have a good shepherd. We thank you for the example of, of those who you have called before, like Paul. And I ask God in the various ways in which we are called to, to be servant leaders. There's so many avenues in this room that are represented. To name them all would, would be impossible from my end, but you know them all. I pray that you would equip each here today to be leaders where they're called, to do so faithfully according to your word, according to the model of Christ. And when we fail, Lord Jesus, we come to you confessing that and asking for your strength to live in the way that you have called us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.